on ABC Radio and on the ABC Listen app. This is Suzanne Hill. Now, do you do this thing when you're in deep concentration where you stick your tongue out? Are there certain smells that make you feel desperately homesick? Maybe you've walked into a room, gosh, I've done this so many times, and can't remember for the life of you what you're doing there. Well, our everyday lives are full of quirks and oddities that can be easily dismissed, but sometimes there are really complex scientific concepts governing these behaviours. And tonight you're going to get a breakdown of what's happening in our brains with a woman who's done a deep dive into some of the quirkier aspects of being a human. Uh, Dr Jen Martin is an award-winning science communicator with the University of Melbourne. She's written the ultimate guide to existential questions we've all asked. Her book is called Why Am I Like This?, the science behind your weirdest thoughts and habits. And she's here to share some of those insights with you. Maybe we can hear from you too. Maybe you wonder why you blink so much or blush so much, crave midnight snacks. Maybe it's a sense you're always feeling left out that you just can't get to the bottom of. Is there something weird that you've wondered, what's going on here? Give us a call, one three hundred eight hundred triple two. You can text in 0467 Jen probably can't ask answer every question that you might think of, but she's prepared to give it a very good try. Hi, Jen. Welcome to Night Life. <laughs> good evening. Thanks so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Oh, you are very welcome. Now, tell me about how you came to write this book. Well, the book actually began on radio. So I've had the great joy and privilege of talking about science on the radio uh, in Melbourne for a long time, uh, nearly 20 years. And one of the things I do is go onto a breakfast show and I can pick any science topic I like and go in and and have a chat with the breakfast team. Uh, And, you know, in preparation, obviously, I read a whole lot of research and, and take advantage of the fact that I've had this great joy and privilege of also getting to study science and, and, you know, explain it. And it really occurred to me that every week I was getting these great messages from people saying, wow, that's so interesting. I've always wondered that and I never knew. And so I decided to start trying to write them up. And it's just, you know, I just love it. Pick something that we're all interested in, do some reading, work out what's actually going on or if we know what's going on. And then, yeah, have the fun of trying to explain it in a way that people will find it interesting. Hopefully that's my goal anyway. So Jen, how many of these questions were inspired by your own experiences and you wondering about things that that you do? Oh, look, you know, full disclosure, heaps of them, heaps and heaps. I mean, like you just said, how often do I walk into a room and then have absolutely no idea what I'm doing there? I mean, what what is going on there? And, you know, why do I procrastinate even though I know that it's just a ridiculously self-fulfilling negative prophecy? You know, every time I put things off, it always goes badly. And heaps of them were my own experiences as well as asking people around me, you know, what is it that you would like to know more about? Because I think a lot of these questions, often there are kind of urban myths or old wives tales out there that we think might be true, but we don't really know. And there's so many brilliant neuroscientists and psychologists in the world who are putting in the hard yards and doing the research to actually try and understand these things as well as we possibly can. And I want to make sure that people have access to all that great information. All right. Well, why don't we start with the sticking your tongue out when you're, you're concentrating? Someone actually just texted in and said some footballers stick their tongues out between their teeth when they're kicking for goal. Looks terribly dangerous. Is that just a sign they're concentrating <laughs> intently on trying to get that goal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you you were saying in your comments earlier, we understand really well that when we see somebody with their tongue visible, it's a really clear signal to us don't disturb me. You know, I'm concentrating really hard. I'm busy. There were some really nice studies where they got uh, universities set up and a, a lecturer at the front of the room who clearly was concentrating very hard, was busy, but the students were put in a position that they had to interrupt their lecturer um, or they couldn't actually complete this test that they were doing. And they did the study twice, one where the lecturer was clearly concentrating very hard, had headphones on, but didn't have their tongue sticking out. And then again, when the lecturer was doing everything the same, but did have their tongue visible. And it took the students on average a little quiet a lot longer to have the courage to go up and interrupt the lecturer when they could see the tongue. So we just see it as a sign of, you know, leave this person alone. They're they're just concentrating hard and don't want to be disturbed. But why do you think it is, Jen, that that happens? Is because 
at other times we're concentrating on keeping our tongues inside our mouths and if we're so <laughs> absorbed in something else we forget. I mean, why, why does the tongue come out at this time? Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, the fact that it tells people to leave us alone doesn't explain anything about why we're actually doing it. And, and there's a couple of different theories out there. I don't think we have a definitive answer. Um, there's one suggestion that it's to do with um, learning language because we know that the part of the brain responsible for language and the part of the brain responsible for hand gestures are really closely linked. And so there's some evidence that as kids are learning language, their tongue gets involved just like their hands gets involved get involved. But one of the theories that I like the best, or that really kind of makes sense to me is think about your tongue right now. Um, it's giving you a lot of information, right? It's inside your mouth and it's constantly giving you a mental map of the inside of your mouth. And it's got a heap of nerves, a really big supply of nerves. And so the idea is that our tongues are actually giving us a lot of information all the time and maybe overloading us a bit with information. So if we find ourselves doing something that requires a lot of uh, thinking or a lot of dexterity, if we put our tongue outside our mouth, we're just reducing a little bit of the input going into our brains and have a little bit more brain power to do whatever it is we're doing. Um, I, I just think that's a cool idea, whether it's definitely, you know, the answer or not, I don't know. But it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It does. Now, I remember, you know, I always did this as a kid when I was reading. I see my son doing, sticking the tongue out all the time. And you're right. When I see him sticking the tongue out, I'm far less likely to want to interrupt him because yeah. oh, he's really <laughs> absorbed. But I remember my dad going, oh, it's genetic. But is it, or is that just his theory? Or is it something that most of us actually do? And are we more likely to do it when we're children than adults? I haven't seen any evidence that, that it's genetic. So that's not to say I've read every paper in the world that's ever come out about this. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but my understanding is that, that most children do it. And the reason more adults don't do it is because we feel a bit embarrassed about it. And we've trained ourselves not to, um, because we think that, you know, we think that it's a, a childish thing to do and we don't want someone to kind of judge us and say, oh, gee, they're concentrating so hard. They had to stick their tongue out. But, but, you know, there are very famous sports people um, who are absolutely known for it. So whether it's just kind of a self-censorship thing. Well, um, uh, Michael Jordan used to do it. It oh. was, you know, people used to think that it was a, you know, it was a special thing that just he did. But of course, lots of children do it as well. Yeah. So... Wow. Dr. Jen Martin yeah. is here uh, from the University of Melbourne and author of this book, Why Am I Likeless? We've got quite a few interesting bits and pieces to explore with Jen tonight. Now, I posed at the beginning, Jen, would you rather spend 15 minutes in a room with like absolutely <laughs> nothing to do or would you rather give yourself an electric shock? And I've got one texter who said, I've got raging ADHD. The electric shock sounds like <laughs> paradise in comparison to doing nothing. And then Car in the Hunter Valley is, oh gosh, you know, I'd much rather be in the room alone for 15 minutes. So what, what's going on? What would lead people to prefer an electric shock to being with their own thoughts for 15 minutes? Maybe that's the actual I mean, answer to that question. Yeah. I mean, it is a bit crazy, right? Most people, at least most busy people, if you say, oh, would you like to have 15 minutes just to sit and have no one demand anything of you? A lot of people would say, oh, gosh, you know, that sounds like heaven. But in fact, the research suggests that that many of us really, really struggle to just sit quietly with our thoughts. So the research that, that some of this story comes from was people were simply asked to sit by themselves in an empty room for up to 15 minutes. They couldn't have anything with them. So they couldn't write anything, read anything. They couldn't have a phone. The rules were they had to sit in a chair and they had to stay awake. Um, and the researchers found that most of them said, actually, that was that was quite difficult. I, you know, I didn't actually enjoy it that much. Um, so then they decided, well, let's see if people will go to such great lengths to avoid doing that by giving them an option of having something to do, but it being something unpleasant. So this is where the electric shock comes in. So it, we're talking a mild electric shock. But when they asked the volunteers who did the study, was it bad enough that they would be willing to pay a fee to avoid being shocked again? Three quarters of them said yes. So it clearly wasn't very pleasant. But then when those people were left alone in the room for 15 minutes, two thirds of the men and a quarter of the women chose to give themselves electric shocks, 
rather than just sitting there alone with their thoughts. I mean, most of them just one or two shocks, but the, the, the researchers said there was one man who pressed the button to give himself a shock nearly 200 what? times. I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? So people yeah. said actually they preferred this electric shock over just being bored. Yeah. And I noticed uh, that uh, there were a couple of times, I think one re- uh, of the researchers accidentally left a pen in the room, someone else yeah. accidentally left some paper, <laughs> and they were just used for everything that could be used for, right? Yeah, I think the story of the paper was that someone decided to practice origami <laughs> with the paper. I mean, like, it's easy to laugh. And, and I guess we should be clear, you know, somebody who's experiencing trauma or grief or, you know, any number of, of kinds of mental health challenges, you can understand that being alone with nothing to do could be really difficult. But what this study is saying, aside from, from people with particular um, challenges that they're dealing with, people who are just you know, normal everyday people not dealing with those challenges still really like to avoid just having to sit quietly. You know, we just like being distracted. And and when you ask people, you know, they say, I think this is going to be really boring. I really don't want to do this. But then, in fact, sometimes with some people afterwards, when you ask them, they say, oh, no, it was actually less difficult than I thought. So maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we expect to be bored and irritated, so we are bored and irritated. Yeah. Jen, I heard, a, we, we actually talked about it on the show not long ago, some room, it might be in New York, that's said to be the quietest room in the world. It's been completely soundproofed with all this incredibly high-end tech. And apparently it is so quiet that you can sort of hear your, your heart beating and your blood running. And, and everything that's going on. And it's this kind of story goes that no one can spend more than about, you know, 10 minutes in there without sort of running out screaming as if it's the worst thing in the world. But maybe it's just being stuck with their own thoughts that's the problem. <laughs> they're just bored. Yeah. yeah, I've heard about that room too because there's lots of evidence that silence is really good for us. There's been a number of studies that were kind of testing people's responses to different kinds of music and what it found out that actually the most, the thing that had the most impact on people was the break between the music, the silence. But you're absolutely right. That really intense silence. I mean, I just can't imagine. Can you imagine being somewhere so quiet that you can hear your own heart beating? That kind of does my head in. I can't imagine it. But you're right. People can't cope. People just say this is really, really stressful. So you're right. Maybe they just didn't want to be alone. (laughs) I've got Dr. Jen Martin here. Have you got a question? You could kind of try and throw anything her way and we'll see what uh, ideas she has. But we've got a lot of things that she's researched too that we're going to cover. 1300 800 222 or you can send in an SMS on 0467 922 702. Now, speaking of silence, Jen, uh, this is one without notice because what I've noticed as I'm getting older is I can handle the loud music less and less but if I'm listening to the radio or a song while I'm driving along and I have to do a complicated traffic maneuver I will have to turn the radio down I have to turn it down if I want to park what's going on there uh look it's not something that I wrote about in the book but I reckon I would be pretty safe in betting that it's just because it's exactly what we were talking about with sticking your tongue out. You're just feeling overloaded. You've got too much sensory input and the fact that you need to do something that's going to require your concentration, like doing a parallel park, means you just have this really clear sense of I need to get rid of some stuff. It's like, have you ever watched people, um, you know, again, when you're really concentrating, closing your eyes because you just, you don't want any visual input coming in because you just want to be able to listen or think. Um, same as when people sometimes really struggle to make eye contact and we look away when we're thinking it's not because we're being rude or because we find it too hard to make eye contact it's just because looking into somebody else's eyes is really stimulating there's so much information we take from other people so we look away break that eye contact so we can think for a moment gather our thoughts and then look back at them and continue the conversation. So I reckon when you're getting this strong sense of, I just have to turn the music down, you just want to reduce the stimulation that you're dealing with, the input that's going into your brain so you can concentrate on whatever it is that you're, you know, that you need to do. Yeah, but it's wise. It's been happening more the older I get. I could do this fine when I was 25. <laughs> now I just can't do it anyway. Um, now, Tony... No. Had- Sorry, I was going to just ask Tony in Penshurst. He says, as I've gotten older, I'm now 60, I seem to have more emotion. I I tear up watching something sad or that's close to my heart. I did this recently when I saw the movie One Life. I don't remember being like this when I was younger. Got some comments on that one, Jen? 
I mean, I, I'm not a qualified psychologist or psychiatrist and anyone who's listening, you know, full disclosure, I'm just speaking from the research that I've done and, and I guess a bit of common sense. So please, nobody feel that I'm treading on any toes. But I feel like there could be a few things going on there. Maybe it's just becoming more comfortable with yourself over time and more accepting of feeling emotional and feeling less, you know, perhaps vulnerable or embarrassed about it. I mean, I guess maybe as we all get more life experience, be that, you know, the really high highs and the really low lows, we also just feel feel things more deeply. I don't know, Suzanne, what, what do you think as a fellow, I assume, amateur psychologist here? Well, I do exactly the same and it's got worse and worse. I can't sing the national anthem without a quiver <laughs> developing in my cheek. I literally cannot do it and it's totally embarrassing. I over-emote. So. But I had kind of thought maybe that was female, maybe past post having children it had got worse. So interesting. I think you should look at that one for your second book, Jen. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm right. I'm going to take notes. Excellent. Okay. Now, there is a clear case for why we shouldn't stop drinking coffee, which might be good news for uh, any nightlifers who've got a bit of a, a coffee addiction. So talk us through this. Why should we not just, you know, close the door on coffee and say, be gone? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's so often that you hear somebody say, oh, my news resolution is to give up coffee or to cut back on coffee. And I sort of wonder if that's because we know that, you know, coffee is addictive, caffeine is addictive, and we generally think of addictions as being bad because um, coffee tends to have a bad name. And, and I think probably also because some of the early research were looking at people who drank a lot of coffee, some of them who may have done other things like smoking or perhaps not exercising very much or having an unhealthier diet. And I wonder if some of the early research concluded that coffee was bad when actually there was this confounded effect of, you know, smoking or, or exercise or whatever. I don't know, because yeah, coffee shouldn't have a bad name. So yes, coffee has caffeine in it, which is addictive, but it's got all of these other compounds as well. And we know some of them have really important health benefits. So there's heaps of research. Um, one of the main studies showed that there's no link between drinking coffee and an increased risk of dying, which I know sounds like a bit of an extreme, but, you know, we, with health things, that's the first thing to rule out. Am I more likely to die as a result of this? And the answer is no. So even people who were drinking six cups of coffee every day, there was no evidence that they were at any higher risk of dying. But not only that, uh, we can see that coffee protects people. There's evidence that coffee protects you, can protect you from a whole heap of diseases. So colon cancer, liver cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, all reduced risk if you drink coffee, reduced risk of type 2 diabetes, um, uh, reduced risk of, you know, changes in long-term memory like um, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. You know, there's, there's really no reason. If you enjoy coffee, if it's not giving you any bad side effects, if you can sleep well, well, if you're not getting anxious, if you don't have any tremors or anything like that, if it's not causing you any problem, I haven't seen any evidence to wow. suggest that people Gets should cut out coffee. such a bad rap though, doesn't it? Really does. Yeah, I mean, why, why do you think that is? Is it because I it's addictive? Know. Like, I don't know. Maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, but it does. I mean, I know when you're not used to it, you know, you have a light, suddenly your heart's racing and you feel a bit worked up, but no. Anyway, Jen, that's, that's fascinating. Now, I think Helen has given us a call with uh, a question that we're hoping you might also have a go at. Jen, hi, Helen. Oh, hi, Suzanne. Hi, Jen. Loving the, the conversation. It's fascinating. But I wanted to talk about reflective behaviour, I guess. Like, for instance, if I'm doing a jigsaw puzzle with a friend and I'm really enjoying it and they're a bit bored, even if they <laughs> yawn, I'll reflect the yawn, but I'm not feeling that emotion of boredom. So... You know, or if someone's That's scratching it. their head, I might likely scratch my head even though I'm not itchy. I just wonder why you have reflective behaviours. I don't know how else to describe it. No, no, that's a great description, Helen, and thanks so much for the excellent question. Um, it, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. If you if you Google um, mirror neurons, I think you'll get some of the answers that you're interested in. And again, you know, I'm not an absolute expert. I'm not a neuroscientist, but my understanding of mirror neurons is that we often um, completely subconsciously do copy things that people do around us. But I'm really glad you brought up yawning uh, because yawning is absolutely known to be very 
very contagious and not just in humans. We've seen it to be contagious in a whole lot of different animals. And there's some really great theories about that. One of the ones I love the best is the idea that if you live in this really tight knit kind of society, um, you know, think of a kind of early human tribe or a, or a you know, a group of uh, baboons or, you know, whatever it is that you can think of. And it was really important that whichever was the most dominant individual in the group, that when they decided it was time to sleep, they needed to make sure everyone else in the group followed and there kind of wasn't fighting. So there's this idea that from an evolutionary point of view, we've absolutely been hardwired that when we see somebody else yawn, we just can't resist but yawn too. And that's us kind of syncing our behaviour uh, with the community around us. So you are completely normal and it, it doesn't actually necessarily mean boredom at all. Helen. Yeah, it, mm. it does seem like a subconscious itch of some sort that you need to do it. You're right. Mm. Yeah, I'll thank you for that. Thanks, Helen. No. Great, great question. And do you know what? As you two started talking about yawning, I started <laughs> Let me guess, yawning. you yawned? Yes, <laughs> yes. And that was only talking about it in the same way, I think, that when we talk about, I don't know, bed bugs or head lice, suddenly everyone starts yep. feeling itchy, don't they? Even though yeah. it's not a visual cue, it's a verbal cue. <laughs> it's just, I mean, our brain, that's why I love reading about this stuff and writing about this stuff because our brains are just odd and rather than kind of feeling alone or anxious or like we're particularly weird or unusual I just think recognizing that we're all like this and we can embrace these absolute quirks and oddities and just enjoy them I mean it's yeah it's part of being human I think now, in relation to, to silence, Graham says, I live on my own in the country. I hear my heart beating and my blood moving every night because it is so quiet. So you go, you don't have to go to the quietest room in the world in New York to experience that kind of silence. Thanks, Graham, wow. for your SMS. If you've got a question for Jen, we would love to hear from you. one 800 is uh, the number to give us a call on. This is Nightlife with Suzanne Hill. Step into the heart of creativity on ABC iView. A place to embrace a national treasure with inside the Sydney Opera House. Opening nights are always stressful. It's ridiculous how emotional it makes me. We just need to make sure we get it right. And enjoy artworks, last night of the proms, knowing the score and so much more. Do you expect to be that moved? I didn't. Your heart's desire in arts, music and culture. It is magic. All streaming for free on ABC iView. Nightlife with Suzanne Hill on ABC Radio. Great to have you on Nightlife tonight. My guest is Dr Jen Martin, a science communicator at the University of Melbourne and the author of Why Am I Like This? The Science Behind Your Weirdest Thoughts and Habits. So if you've got something you'd like to throw at Jen, she's happy to take on anything. <laughs> have a go at it. one three hundred eight hundred triple two. The SMS is zero four six seven nine double two seven zero two. Now, Jen, this is one I think most of us will relate to, is that idea that time Time passes more quickly the older we get. What's going on there? It's just terrifying, isn't it? I mean, how can it be 2024? Oh, exactly. <laughs> just in shock. And you're right. I mean, this is something that we know people across all cultures feel. Uh, researchers have been trying to explain the phenomenon for a really long time. So the first thing to know is that regardless of age, the busier you are, the more likely you're going to feel like time is passing too quickly. So if you have that constant time pressure of there's not enough time to get everything done, and, and that's a very Western thing, I think, then yes, absolutely, we feel like time is passing more quickly. But aside from that, as we get older, we absolutely feel like time passes more quickly. And there's there's a few different theories. One of them is pretty simple. It's kind of called the proportionality theory. And it just argues that a year passes much faster, let's say when you're 40 than when you're four, because it's only a 40th of your life. Whereas when you're four, a year is a whole quarter of your life. So that's sort of a basic way of looking at the maths. But the theories that really resonate with me is the idea that the very first time you do something or experience something, the memories that your brain stores are really rich. You know, there's lots of maybe it's the, the smells, the sights, the feelings, the sounds, you know, we have these really amazing memories. So when you think back to your childhood, when you were doing and experiencing new things really often, you have very rich, vivid memories. And so when you look back, you feel like because there's so many memories and they're so dense that they must have formed over a long time. 
so it feels like our childhoods took forever. But of course, as adults, most of us, not everyone, but most of us fall into a fairly predictable routine. You know, we, we may have family members that we're spending at most of our time with or looking after. We have our colleagues, we go to work, you know, life becomes less full of new things. And so when we look back, those times, you know, they seem to have taken very little time because we didn't have a whole lot of new exciting things punctuating our time. So, the researchers suggest that if you want your life to slow down a bit, if it feels like it's just going by way too fast, we've got to actually make sure we have new experiences more often. So going to new places, learning new things, you know, that's a way to kind of feel like we're slowing down time. So so my answer is I think we should just all have more holidays. I think that's the answer. <laughs> well, I was going to say that, you know, when you go travelling and say you, you go away for three weeks, it feels like you have packed so much into that three weeks. And at, at two and a half weeks in, you're thinking, was that two weeks ago that I was doing that? So I think you're absolutely yep. right. More holidays totally is agree. what we let th- need. Yeah. And then if you compare that three weeks of holiday to three weeks of normal routine and you feel like just no time's passed at all and you think, wow, how could that possibly have been three weeks? It feels like a couple of days. So, yep, holidays, let's do it. <laughs> now, Andy says, I was yawning too when we were talking about yawning, uh, <laughs> but he adds that Curtin Uni in Perth had one of these soundproofed rooms. Apparently the walls were acoustically absorbent, so it deadened the sound even if you screamed, it was freaky, <gasps> says Andy. Andy, oh. I don't know if you mean that you actually went into it. Wow. That sounds freaky. I wonder I, what they I want to go. For. I know. <laughs> Much cheaper than going to New York. Now, let's, we've got lots of people on the line wanting to, uh, to have a yarn. Jan, and see if you've got any ideas about some of the quirky things that they experience. Hello, Kelson. Hey, mate. Hey, so um, I've noticed, like, I'll be in the workshop or the tractor or even on the motorbike checking on some cattle and stuff like that, and um, just out of the blue every couple of hours, I'll just, like, holler something out. And I've noticed a few people I work with do it too, and it's just, like, the most random words at the most random times. And I've never (laughs) sort of um, figured out why we do that. So, wow, what, I mean, I've what, what, never heard that before. Tell us more. Yeah, what's an example of the, one of the random words you might say? Um, so it could just be anything like um, I was driving earlier on tonight and I just randomly said pasta for some reason. Out of all the things I said pasta. Is that what you were hoping to eat? Were you starving? Yeah, were you thinking about pasta? No, mate. No, no I, was, um, I was actually thinking about a steak. maybe somewhere back in your life at some point someone told you you should eat less red meat and you should be eating more pasta and it just suddenly came back to you on the tractor quite potentially and um like sometimes in the workshop um some of the boys they'll just randomly yell out things like hello or um what's really common with the younger fellas is the word yeet which means it's an adjective Mm. uh it means to throw an object wow yeah and they'll just say that randomly. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, um, I reckon it's more common in males too to do that. Ah, well, that's an interesting and do you reckon? One. Do you reckon it's just kind of, you know, touching base? If you're busy doing things, maybe you're not, you know, looking at each other so much because you're busy, but you're just kind of checking in and making sure, you know, who's there, letting people know you're there. I mean, to me, that just kind of sounds like a bit of nice, you know, a nice way to operate with your mates when you're working and just kind of touching base without stopping whatever, you know, you're doing that you need to be busy with. (laughs) Yeah, it it sort of does make sense and it it sort of lets you know that people are about as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We always like to know we're not alone. But while you said pasta while you were thinking about steak, that one's the mystery. (laughs) Okay, Jen, we need an investigation into this one, please. (laughs) Surely you were just really hungry and you were happy to eat pasta and steak. Quite potentially, yes. All right. Well, we'll we'll leave that one as a a mystery. Two, there's the talking to yourself. What is going on when you're thoughts suddenly actually you start verbalizing them i do this all the time and suddenly i'm conscious that someone's staring at me i'm like oh no i'm talking out loud again why do we do that I think it's really common. I mean, I think probably all of us have a tendency to do that, but maybe we've trained ourselves out of it because, again, we think we shouldn't or we think it's embarrassing. But, you know, if we're trying to sort through some ideas, we're trying to make a decision or we're trying to just, you know, work out what has to happen next, it's it's really common for us to go step by step. And some of us like to say it out loud, and I'm sure some people just don't. I mean, you know, there's so many individual differences, but talking aloud to yourself is extremely 
extremely common. People, yeah, do it all the time. Now, Chris says, I remember talking with some mates and it was brought up that when a guy hits his 50s, we tend to tear up at the slightest prompt. Mm. Are there any well, other I mean, men getting a little bit sort of through this this midlife period, finding that they're suddenly a lot tearier than they used to be? I'd like a bit of a straw poll on that one, blokes, if you could help me there. What are you thinking, <laughs> Jen? Have you noticed? Have you? I mean, is this something you've heard of? Ah, uh, look, yes and no. I mean, I think what we were talking about earlier—that perhaps as we get older, we just become more comfortable with being emotional—and I wonder if there are lots of men of that vintage who were told as young boys, you know, boys don't cry, you shouldn't cry, or even if they were never told that, they kind of picked that up as a social cue that it wasn't the cool thing to do to cry. And maybe once you get to around 50, you kind of think, well, I don't really care what people think. If I feel emotional because I've just watched a sad movie or whatever it is, I'm going to cry and tear up. And, you know, if people want to judge me, let them judge me. I would hope it's people just becoming more comfortable with themselves and not worrying so much about having to hide emotion. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that could could well be it. But I don't know. There might be something else. Anyway, that's you're the scientist, Jen. <laughs> this one's on you to figure out. Hey, Dr. Jen Martin is here, University of Melbourne science communicator and author of the book called Why Am I Like This? The Science Behind Your Weirdest Thoughts and Habits. Hello, Cheryl. Yes. What's your question, Cheryl? Um, sneezing. Yes. What about it? Uh, um, well, I've done it for years. Get out of bed and sneeze about six or seven times. I don't know why. Um, the funny part is my daughter doesn't do it, but my granddaughter, she's about 30, um, and she does it. Oh. And then do you sneeze the rest of the day or is it just when you get out of bed? No, just early in the morning, basically when you get out of bed, you know. Mm. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, I I haven't heard any kind of unusual or weird explanations for sneezing. My understanding of sneezing is that it's, you know, simply that the the membranes on the inside of your nose or in your throat have been irritated, could be, you know, it could be mould or it could be pollen, which is giving you hay fever or dust. And so every time you have that irritation, you know, you can't control sneezing. But I think some people are definitely more prone to it than others, whether there's some genetic link going on, I don't know, but maybe... Maybe you just have something in the air around you that's just really irritating you and you're quite prone to that sort of allergy response. But only in the mornings, right, Cheryl? Yes, only in the mornings, basically when you get out of bed. And and does it happen when you sleep in different places? I'm just trying to work out whether it's something specific to you or something specific Um, to the room that you're sleeping in or maybe both. My daughter, I don't. Ah, so that suggests there's something in your room where you normally sleep at home that is causing you some irritation. So whether yeah. there's, you know, there's some dust or something, um, yeah. that, that would be my, I mean, again, I'm not a medical doctor, but that would seem pretty logical yeah. to me. But my granddaughter does it too. <laughs> she, she lives six hours away from me. But perhaps you both, you both have hay fever and that's... You know, because um, hay fever can take on all different forms. Yeah. So some people it's runny eyes, some people it's sneezing, you know, it can look like all different things. Yeah, yeah just, just first thing in the morning. Yeah, yeah interesting. interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, ah, this is a good suggestion. We can call him uh, Dr. David, the scientist. Uh, David from Warrington said the reason, maybe the reason that more men are crying in their middle age is that testosterone levels are dropping and maybe some of the barriers to crying, those physical ones are kind of melting away. Yeah, look, that could absolutely be true. That's not something that I have lots of expertise in, um, but I'm, you know, I'm happy to do some research and look into yeah. it. But look, yeah, that that could actually, that could absolutely be part of what's going on for sure. I mean, I don't think there's going to be one answer here, like most of these questions that I've been researching. You know, it'd be a pretty boring book if every question we asked them was like, here's the answer, I'll give it to you in one <laughs> sentence, let's move on. So there's probably quite a few factors going on, I think. Yeah. Now, someone else says, I used to sneeze six times every morning. Probably the seagrass matting. (laughs) Yes, that would make sense. All right. Um, I love this. Someone says, if someone looks at you oddly for talking to yourself, you can just say, well, I'm certain of intelligent conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a great response. (laughs) Thank you very much. Oh, now Louise might have some thoughts on the sneezing. Hello, Louise. 
Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. I'm Ring from Wabakul Country. How are you? Yeah, doing very well. Newca- um, I just called you Newcastle, Louise. Sorry, Louise from Newcastle. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> uh, so what are your thoughts on sneezing? Well, some people sneeze when they're suddenly exposed to bright light. Um, and I mm. believe that, that um, it's a genetically inherited propensity to to do so. And so perhaps when um, the lady and her granddaughter are getting up, they've, they've woken up from dark and they're looking at something bright for the first time, that that could be triggering it. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. We needed to ask more questions, didn't we, about um, yeah, what's the room like and how do you wake up and, and do you quickly raise a blind? Because you're absolutely right. There's definitely a link between sneezing and, and light. So, uh, so many questions. Reflex, a photic sneeze reflex, it's apparently called. Yeah, there you go. And on on yawning, by the way, um, I have epilepsy and I yawn at um, any strong emotion. Mm. whether it's something funny or sad or whatever. And so people can be a bit kind of off-put by by that because they think I'm bored. No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, that must be quite a challenge. Do you find yourself constantly explaining? This is not because I'm bored or tired. It's something different. No, no, I, I, I generally just don't bother. <laughs> Fair enough, too. But, you know, pe- people people aren't people aren't silly about it. You know, they 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 might look a bit sort of you know oddly at you, but they, they don't usually <laughs> make a fuss. So who cares? Yeah. Oh, thanks, Absolutely. Louise. All right, that yeah. was that was a good lead on the uh, the photic sneeze reflex. There, actually, Jen, I was watching the American version of um, the new series of Love on the Spectrum last night with people who mm-hmm. have autism spectrum disorder and they're dating, and there was one date and the guy you know the, the girl started talking about something she was interested in and he started yawning and I went oh this date's going terribly this looks really <laughs> bad and then he said oh I know I'm, I'm yawning but that's what I do when I'm nervous so yawning it seems can pop up in all kinds of ways and as a reaction to all kinds of things for different people. Oh, I think that's really common. <clears throat> Absolutely. I know. I definitely know people who, when they're feeling a little bit nervous or a bit anxious, yawning. And and I don't know exactly what's going on there inside the brain, but I think that's a really clear link. I mean, maybe yawning is kind of a way of trying to diffuse tension a bit. You know, if I'm yawning, then it's kind of signaling to you that I'm probably not much of a threat because I'm a bit tired or whatever. So I, I think that, yeah, there's lots of things we could think about, about why yawning is a sort of a signal, just like a tongue sticking out is a signal, don't disturb. I reckon yawning is probably a signal. You know, I'm not a threat. I'm probably friendly. Uh, Jen uh, Martin is here. If you've got a question, one three hundred eight hundred triple two, or you can uh, SMS us zero four six seven nine double two seven zero two. Okay, procrastination, Jen. This is one you said you deal with, you know, a lot. <laughs> so, what's going on with us when we procrastinate? Because as you say, we all know it's not going to end well in the long term. I know, but it's really common. There's been so much research on this. And, you know, a lot of people say that procrastination is one of their defining personality traits. There was one study of university students and only 1% of them said that they don't procrastinate. So it's really common. And one of the favourite things that I found out when I was doing this research was that there there are actually hieroglyphics from 1400 BC that translate as, friend, stop putting off work and allow us to all go home in good time. So, you know, this is not a recent phenomenon. If it's in hieroglyphics, that means it's been around for a long time. Okay. So what are the thoughts on why we're doing it though? So the simplest understanding we have of procrastination is that there are two parts of your brain that are essentially battling one another. So Let's talk about the first part. That's the, the limbic system. And the limbic system has been around for a really long time. It evolved quite early in, in, um, in mammal evolution. And one of the researchers I spoke to said that we should think of that as our inner four-year-old. So your limbic system is basically constantly on the lookout for instant gratification. What can I do that's going to be fun, that's going to be rewarding? You know, let's, let's just party now, whatever it is that I feel like doing. But of course, as humans, we've evolved many other parts of our brains. And the part of the brain that many people will have heard of is the prefrontal cortex that's involved with things like planning and decision making and, you know, making good decisions for our future. And so at any one time, you've got this 
one part of your brain saying, woohoo, what's fun? What can I do now that will make me feel good? And then the limbic part of the system, sorry, the prefrontal cortex saying, no, no, come on, we need to do the work that we need to do. We've got a deadline coming up. Let's use our time wisely. And, and they're just in battle. And it's really, really easy to avoid the difficult stuff and just to get carried away with doing whatever feels fun at the time. And, I, you know, it kind of makes sense. And, and the idea is that procrastination is not being lazy or, you know, not being able to have any self-control. It's just that doing something fun is much more appealing in the short term than doing something that in many cases what we procrastinate over are things that don't make us feel very good because either they lead us to feel inadequate because we don't think we can do them well or, you know, we just really don't know what we're doing and it makes us feel really anxious that we're going to make a mistake. You know, often we're just avoiding things that feel hard and that's pretty normal. Yeah. Uh, I've got Dr. Jen Martin here. All right. So Jenny, you, do you, you know, how do you deal with it? Do you just procrastinate and then eventually you get around to it or knowing <laughs> that, that this is going on, you know, can you talk yourself into it, into doing what uh, you look, you can, Yeah, look, you can definitely talk yourself into it. The most useful thing I've learned is to try and figure out why I'm procrastinating. You know, am I procrastinating because I genuinely don't know how to do this thing and I need to ask for help or I don't have the tools? Am I procrastinating just because I think it's hard and actually it may not be, in which case, you know, I set myself the goal of just working on something for five minutes and then I'm allowed to give up if I want to, but more often than not, you discover after five minutes that it's not so bad. Um, the study that I like best that I read about procrastination is one that showed one of the best ways to reduce your risk of procrastinating in future is to forgive yourself for procrastination that you've done in the past because you know if if let's imagine you put something off you feel really bad about it you're so frustrated you beat yourself up you know i always do this i never leave myself enough time why don't i learn you know, you're not going to get better. You just feel really rubbish about it. Whereas instead, if you try and turn your self-talk into, well, it was a really hard task. No wonder I put it off. It's really understandable. But actually, that's okay. I, I don't have to beat myself up. I'm going to try and do something different next time. You know, that kind of positive self-talk can really, according to this research, can make a really big difference in, in stopping procrastination. So yeah, I just try and be a bit kinder to myself and work out why I'm putting it off. So all you procrastinators, nightlife listeners, just let's all be kind about it. We all understand yeah. why we do it. I like that. And, and also, I like that. and also, and I think also if you can kind of project forwards and think about how good you're going to feel once you've done it, then that can be a good way to get some motivation in the here and now to actually get started. That kind of works mm. for me because, you know, when something's weighing you down, just project forward. If I just commit three hours to this, it'll be out of my life. You know, that, that can really help, I think. Mm. Now, Steve has an SMS with a, a take on the sort of men tearing up more as they get older. Oh, he good. He says, I'm 62. As I get older, I find a few tears well up. I don't think it's a drop in testosterone, but the events I get emotional about remind me of special happy or sad moments in the archives of my mind. Maybe younger people don't yep. have that vast range of highs and lows. And with age, I appreciate those memories. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And I don't think I expressed it nearly that eloquently, but that's what I was trying to say before. You know, the longer we live, the bigger the range of emotions and experiences we've had in our lives. And yeah, things that happen to us remind us of, of wonderful, sad, difficult, joyful experiences in the past. And we reconnect with those emotions and re-experience the emotions. So I, I actually, yeah, I think that's spot on. I would agree completely. Oh, we're piecing this together. Okay, Chris in Tarmore. <laughs> Hello, Chris. How you going? Yeah, very well. What's your question? Um, I just jumped in late listening to your segment and I think it's about how what one person does, someone else watching that adopts that and carries on with that behaviour. And well, while you were talking, it struck me about how in football, when, when I did something like to inspire the team, I'd really try to um, go hard into the opposition and run hard into them and, and then say, come on, come with me, come on, come on me. And <laughs> we might be losing at the time, but it's suddenly everyone in the team is playing a lot better because of what one person did. And in cricket too, like you see... The, the batsmen out there are, are thinking, oh, yeah, we've had it, you know, we're not going to make this. And then one player starts smashing it everywhere. Not only does it inspire his team, but the bowler at the other end, he 
can't pull off what he's trying to do anymore because he thinks that everything he does is just going to smash over the fence again. So it throws <laughs> him off and it inspires all his team and they usually win from that because that carries on through the rest of the game and gets them home. Yeah, that, that's such great stories, and I think you're absolutely right. It's because at the end of the day, you know, humans, we're, we're really social. We evolve to live and depend on other humans, so we're really tuned into being able to see people, being able to try and read people's emotions, getting caught up in what other people are doing and thinking. You know, we really depend on one another, and there's quite a few um, little chapters in my book that talk about what that evolutionary background has led to today, things like FOMO, the fear of missing out is because we need to keep tabs on the people around us and what they're doing and yeah I think sport's a great example of humans being tuned into each other and us being able to have a really big impact on how other people feel and their motivation it's yeah great stuff. Thanks so much, Chris. Now, here's an SMS from someone who was uh, from Vieira. Um, being a hairdresser for more than 55 years in the days of highlighting cabs, there's a nerve around the front area of the scalp that triggers sneezing in lots of people when you're drawing hair through the caps, is um, Vieira. I know when I go to get my eyebrows done, I just have to take so many tissues because it's just a sneezing <laughs> fit. And I have to keep saying, stop, stop. <laughs> I'm getting the threading because I'm going to sneeze now. Yeah, lots. Gosh, sneezing pops up in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? Yeah, oh. super interesting. Yeah. Now, something I thought was really fascinating is that this idea that our personalities are kind of set for life. If you're the, you know, outgoing, conscientious um, you know, kid at seven, you're going to be that same person more or less when you're 80. But what has research found about how much we hang on to those personalities that we had as kids through our lives. Yeah, so there's really good research to suggest that, you know, what you have just said, we all think is true, is actually not true at all. So when you follow the same group of people over a number of years, it's called a longitudinal study. Um, and there's been a whole heap of them looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of people, and in some cases, managing to track quite a few of those people over decades and decades and decades. Um, and it turns out that we change a lot. So in one study, it was it started off with um, four 14-year-old Scottish students and they followed them over 60 years and, you know, they were rated by themselves and by their teachers at 14 on a whole lot of personality traits. And then when you go forward 60 years, um, again, they rated themselves and then they asked a relative or a friend to rate them on these personality traits. And in, in most cases, they changed so much that you couldn't even recognise their, for, their former personalities. I mean, some things stayed similar, generally, you know, kind of how stable each person mood was. Um, there was a few things, but really, once they got into those older years, they, they just had very little in common with the sort of people that they'd been as teens. And I just love the study because it means that, you know, you're likely to reinvent yourself at least once, probably in multiple ways and in multiple times during the course of your life. Um, and, and that's just great, right? So if there are things about yourself that you struggle with or you wish you were different, then you can probably change if you want to. Uh, Dr. Jen Martin is here. She's the author of Why Am I Like This? The Science Behind Your Weirdest Thoughts and Habits. And Jen, lots of people on the SMS saying how much they are enjoying all the quirky bits and pieces that you're presenting them with tonight. Let's talk about blushing. Do you blush a lot? Uh, I don't blush a lot, but I've definitely had times in my life where I have blushed and felt really, you know, like it can be quite confronting to blush. You know, the, the whole thing is blushing happens when we're feeling nervous or anxious and like we don't want to be the focus of attention. And that's the very time that we do blush, which can be, be pretty disconcerting. Um, and the actual kind of physiology, what's happening in our bodies with blushing is is pretty clear. So the, the part of your nervous system, which is involved in the fight or flight response, that most people have heard of. It's called the sympathetic nervous system. When that part of your nervous system is active, you get adrenaline released into your system. And adrenaline means that your heart rates go up, your heart rate goes up and your blood vessels actually dilate so that you can get better blood flow around your body. And that the, those um, blood vessels dilating is what means you have more blood flow to your face and you get this you know, bright red blotchy face. And it's difficult because we don't have any you know, control over it. If someone asks you to blush, you can't. But if you are blushing, you can't stop. 
But the, the, the really cool thing about blushing is, and, you know, for some people this is a really chronic problem and really debilitating, but what we do know is that we, you know, we blush when we feel ashamed or really exposed or embarrassed, but research has shown that blushing may actually have an evolutionary advantage because if you see someone blushing, you tend to judge them as more trustworthy. You see them as somebody who, you know, is able to uh, signal if they're worried or if they feel regret or, you know, it's a way of uh, being able to visibly see somebody's emotions. And so because, um, you know, you can't control whether you're going to blush or not, it's thought to be much more reliable than saying sorry to someone or describing your emotions with your words. It's completely mm -hmm. out of your control. And so maybe it's a way of signaling to people, you know, you can trust me, you can forgive me, I'm an honest person. And that's what the research says, that we trust, um, you know, we trust trust and like and believe people more if they blush. So it might be really uncomfortable and make you feel vulnerable. I'm not saying blushing is something that we all like to do, but the research suggests there is an evolutionary advantage to it, that people will like you more and want to hang out wow. with you. <laughs> How interesting. Yeah, now, interesting. before I let you go, this is just one of mine that I'm, and I'm wondering if anyone else experienced this. And this is another one the in the as you get older category. I think I've noticed in the last, say, four or five years, if I see violence, say I see someone fall over, someone's in pain, violence on the TV, I get this kind of judder through my legs every time. Yeah. Any idea what that might be? Look, I haven't heard that before, but I mean, is it is it kind of a stress response? Are you feeling really distressed at seeing the violence? Well, I don't feel like I am. It's kind of a, oh, that, that doesn't look nice. It might be, you know, a gaping mm. wound or something. But it's this very particular juddering that goes on through my legs. Anyway, wow. that can be another one for the next book, Jen. <laughs> I think you've got plenty. But, I mean, there's just a million questions. And, you know, I just love that, that for all of us there are just these weird, quirky things and we wonder if it's just us. And, you know, the more we talk about it and realise that we're all completely normal in our weirdness and mm. often science has really good answers to help us understand what's actually going on in our bodies and our brains. It just becomes this really fun, curious adventure to ask all the questions. It does. And so much that science is going to explain in the future that it just hasn't quite got around to yet either. Hey, Jen, uh, lots of people again saying how much they've enjoyed the conversation. So thank you for being our guest on Nightlife tonight. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And I hope everyone keeps asking themselves lots of great questions. But thanks, Jen. That is Dr. Jen Martin. Uh, she's a science communicator at the University of Melbourne and the author of this new book, Why Am I Like This? The Science Behind Your Weirdest Thoughts and Habits. This is Nightlife with Suzanne Hill.